Today we're going to continue on in our series in 1 Samuel, as Tim was reading from last week's message in chapter 16, or chapter 6, rather, of Sam, 1 Samuel. I, I'm going to have us focus this morning on 1 Samuel chapter 7. You can turn there and mark it, or put your finger there, or put your neighbor's finger there, just as long as you mark it, because we're actually going to start in Judges. I, I want to lay a relay, just a, a, a basic foundation upon which we can use as a springboard, hopefully, to help us to grasp the essence of the message. And there should be very basic outlines coming to you that you can follow along with, make notes on, and, um, and, and hopefully that will be a, a help to you. So if you don't mind, turn back to Judges, the book of Judges, chapter 2. To understand and appreciate the condition that we find the nation of Israel in, in the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel, it's good to just go back and, and, and recall the recent history of the people of Israel. Of course, we know that God graciously brought them out of bondage in Egypt under the leadership of Moses into the wilderness where they trekked for some 40 years. It was a very trying time for them. But then God brought them under the leadership of a mighty man of God, a godly leader, a military genius by the name of Joshua. And, and, and Joshua succeeded in carrying out the mission that God had, had initiated with Moses and bringing his people into the land that God had promised to Abraham that would be the, the, the home of, of the Jews, the Hebrews, the Israel. And now we're at the point after Joshua's death. And of course, Joshua had tremendous influence upon the mindset of the people of God. And to appreciate 1 Samuel, it's good to go back and just recall briefly out of Judges, the state, the spiritual state of the nation of Israel. It almost reminds you of the contemporary setting in which we live. When you examine the spiritual health of the nation in which we live or the world in which we live for that matter. So in, in, in Judges in chapter 2, in verse 11, read, read along as I read for you. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, those are the pagan gods of the Canaanites. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they prayed and, and they provoked the Lord to anger. And they abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. The Ashtoreth are simply the female counterpart to the Baals. And, and so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. He gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of the, their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned. And as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. And so, as you look at that, throughout the, that particular period of the history of, of Israel, the, God's people, we know that God's people turned in a very drastic and a very dangerous and deadly way away from God and towards sin. And so God would raise up foreign pagan nations around them who would oppress them as, as the text told there and then the people of God would cry out to God seeking his help 
and seeking his mercy. And indeed, God would mercifully send a divinely appointed judge, typically a, a military leader, someone, a military champion, who would deliver them from the oppression that they were experiencing. And for a short while, his people would serve him. And then the cycle would repeat itself over and over and over. It almost reminds me of the, of the spiritual state of our nation. Sometimes it seems like our nation is seemingly turning to God, but then we fall back into patterns of sin. We you know, cry out in desperation in hard times to God. And now think about individual Christians who go through cycles. They'll be, they'll be close to the Lord and on fire for, for, for Jesus. And then things, you know, they, they get slack and they can become lackadaisical, they become compromised and they allow sin. And before you know it, they're in a desperate situation. There's consequences of their sin and they're crying out to God. Now, as we've seen in previous messages in 1 Samuel, the nation of Israel under the impotent spiritual leadership of Eli, the priest, and his wicked priestly sons, they've continued their practices of, 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 of rebellion against God that has led the people of God to rebel against God, including adopting sinful religious practices of the pagan nations around them. And you see this transpiring. But despite the rebellious ways of his people, Jehovah was not giving up on them. That's the incredible thing. Even at the lowest point in, in the spiritual state of God's people, God doesn't give up on his people. He remembered the covenant promises he had made to his faithful servants, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And if I might insert here today, you know, as I think about the vicious cycles of this period of the judges, we're, we're about to see this broken in, in the text today. And if I might insert here, this word of encouragement to God's people today, you know, God knows that we live in a wicked world. He knows that we come constantly under the influence of evil forces around us. He knows that we are constantly subjected to the temptations of a sinful flesh nature that, that abides with us wherever we, we go, whenever. He knows that we come under the temptations of, of Satan and, and, and his evil spirits. And yet our, our heavenly father knows that we are bound to fall into temptation and sometimes we sin. God knows this. And so as a result of not walking close in fellowship with the Lord as we once did, our prayer life, our Bible study, our worship, our service, our ministry becomes superficial, basically fruitless. And unrepentant sin, unrepented sin in our lives disrupts our close fellowship and spiritual intimacy with our Creator. If you're wondering why your spiritual life doesn't have encouragement and and and, uh, and power and promise it could be because there's unrepentant sin in your life in your heart so i want to encourage you just as god didn't give up on his people then god doesn't give up on his people now god knows where we are spiritually he loves us and he cares for us and he is patient and kind and gracious and merciful so let me encourage you through this message not to lose heart no matter where you are in your walk with the Lord and what's going on in your life, knowing 
that God is in the business of reviving his people. He did for Israel, as we'll see today, and he's in the business of reviving the hearts of people today. And not only does our merciful and gracious God desire revival in every, every Christian's heart, he also desires to see revival in every local congregation across this land. And so, he, and, and the wonderful thing, as we see in our text today, when it comes to this matter of reviving his people, God takes the initiative. Just as in salvation, God takes the initiative. And I praise the Lord for that. That demonstrates to us the deep abiding love of God and his desire to be in close, intimate fellowship with us. And he'll do anything to ensure that we're as close to him as we possibly can be. So now, y'all, I would ask if you'd get to your text there in 1 Samuel chapter 2, 1 Samuel chapter 7, excuse me. I'm going to begin looking at verse 2. And as we do, we'll be talking about God reviving his people. God revives his people. As we learned in the recent messages, Israel was suffering from the lack of strong spiritual leadership. We saw that in Eli and his wicked sons who were priestly sons at that time but certainly not authentic priests but more importantly from the lack of god's manifested presence god's people were lacking a sense of the presence of god as it was symbolized by the absence of the ark the ark is just a symbolic representation of the presence of god and so with the ark being away for these past seven months prior to seven chapter seven it was symbolic of the fact that not only were they, they lacking from strong leadership, uh, spiritual leadership, but they were lacking from a sense of the presence of God. And Pastor Mark helped us in chapter 6 to see how God orchestrated the ark's return to the rightful hands of his people, signaling symbolically, keep that in mind, signaling symbolically that God was about to return to his people. In other words, the beginning of revival of Israel, the people of God, and they're in their relationship with the one true living God. And when Israel is groveling in the consequences of their sins, including the humiliating subjection to the Philistines, God is at work. He's behind the scene. God has a plan, and he's about to unfold that wonderful plan for his people. So even in our personal walk, with the Lord, times where we may be distant from the Lord, drifted from the Lord. We've allowed sin to come between us and the Lord. Listen, don't lose heart. God knows where you are. He loves you and he has a plan. He has a plan. And so in God's bringing and reviving his people, bringing them to revival and reviving his people, I want you to see how God behind the scene is raising up a godly leader. What a word of encouragement. God is raising up a godly leader because we see, ironically, we see in contrast the ascendance of Samuel in contrast to the downfall of Eli, the priest. And I'll just summarize for you, going back to, into chapter, uh, chapter 1 of uh, 1 Samuel, just, just let me summarize. When we talk about Samuel, I just want to remind you, because it's been a few weeks since we've, we've examined that. You may recall in chapter, chapter 1 of Samuel, 1 Samuel, chapter 1, how Samuel's mother, Hannah, a godly woman, 
a woman who loved the Lord, a woman of, of powerful prayer. She was barren. She prayed to God and asked the Lord if he would be so merciful and kind to, to grant her a son, that she would dedicate that son back to God to serve the Lord for the entirety of his life. What a wonderful example Hannah was. And we know that indeed that God did bless her as a result of her faith, as a result of her, of her prayers, but in accordance to his divine plan, God blessed her with a son. And she did exactly what she said as soon as she weaned the child. And, and scholars tell us that Samuel was probably about maybe three years old, maybe possibly four, but a very small child. And she brought him to the, to the tabernacle with the offerings necessary. And she left him with that wicked priest, Eli. But she had made a promise to God. She would leave him to serve the Lord. And there, little Samuel served. And I can just imagine how crushing that was, hard it was, for the mother in Hannah to, to fulfill that promise to God. But it's interesting then, because back in chapter two, in verse 26, we, we see glimpses, even though Samuel is a young boy behind the scenes with his little, little miniature ephod, his, his, his uh, priestly garb on, with a little robe that his mother would make for him every year when she would come to the tabernacle to sacrifice, and she would have this little robe. And I can just see him going about the temple or the tabernacle, waiting on Eli, taking care of things, lighting candles, cleaning up here. You know, he's serving the Lord, it says in verse 26 of chapter 2. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. I thought that was so reminiscent of what we heard from Luke as he described the boy Jesus Christ and you see God's hand upon Samuel at this young and, and very tender age and in chapter 3 verse 1 another glimpse of Samuel see God's working in this young man's life even behind the scenes now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli and if you go ahead you remember in chapter 3 that's where God spoke to Eli Eli had no idea who was calling his name it turned out God was calling him and giving him a prophetic word that was a heavy word if you will because in in that word that he was given to to Samuel God was pretty much spelling out for Eli his doom and yet God entrusted that to Samuel as a, as a young child, if you will. And in chapter 3, verse 19, it says, And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. Even as a young man, as Samuel is speaking, what God is saying, everything that Samuel is saying is coming true. Folks, that's what the Scripture says is the evidence of a true prophet. Everything. No words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord, in verse 21, and the Lord appeared again at Shiloh for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Do you see what God is doing as he is cultivating behind the scenes? Mind you, Eli is still the priest. His, his ungodly sons are still going about their antics in the tabernacle. Things are looking dismal spiritually because we know that when the Philistines attacked, that the Israelites made the terrible mistake and the reckless mistake of taking the Ark of the Covenant, thinking they could man manipulate Almighty God into winning the battle for them. And instead, God allowed the Ark to be captured and Israel was soundly defeated. And Eli's sons were killed, just as God said, and Eli himself died. And that ended his priestly role. All of that, 
Biblical scholars tell us that the probability in that battle, Shiloh was absolutely destroyed. So there goes the, the, the worship center for Israel. So you see God behind these miserable and, 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 and pessimistic circumstances, God is raising up a leader and what a leader. And so when we go back over to chapter seven in 1 Samuel, we see how God is, has got his hand in the situation and he's working. And so in verse two, it says, from the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Don't lose that last phrase because it's significant. The, the, it, the, it says the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. That word, that phrase means that the nation of Israel was mourning, mourning, grieving, broken. What's, what's broken their hearts? I would say to you, Samuel, all the time that God has been bringing judgment upon Israel and he has been venting his anger upon them and bringing uh, judgment for their sin, I believe behind the scene, this man who God had given the prophetic gift of speaking the word of God to the people of God, he is emerging as Israel's next judge, if you will, he will be a leader, but he will also be God's prophet. And so we see God raising Samuel up as a young man, and the Lord uses his prophet Samuel to speak to his people, and it brings conviction, I believe, in their hearts. And without conviction, there cannot be repentance, and God is bringing that about. Repentance is important to reacquire righteousness for those who have fallen away from God. And I wanted to offer these words from the Apostle Paul talking about the importance of, of, of repentance in, in 2 Corinthians in chapter 7, verse 10. Paul says, For godly grief re produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Paul says repentance is absolutely essential. So going back now to chapter 7 in 1 Samuel, Look at verse 3, and Samuel said to all the house of Israel, remind you, they're under conviction. They're mourning before God. Their hearts are broken. And he says, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign idols and the asterisk from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Let's just pause there for a second. Because I want you to see that the Lord through Samuel asserts his righteous requirements. What would it take for the nation of Israel to be rightly related with Jehovah God again? The God that had done so many wonderful things for that uh, people all through the generations. What would it take? And Samuel is unfolding here God's righteous requirements. First of all, I believe Samuel gives what I call the in two distinct phases the negative part first. When it comes to repentance, there are two phases. First is the negative part, and then what we'll see is the positive part. And the negative part of repentance is turning their back on their idolatrous practices 
And yet the positive aspect is turning to the Lord in devoted love. That encompasses the process of repentance. It's not just turning away from sin. It's turning to the Lord. I think about Dr. Bobby Welch, who gave us the witness training uh, model called faith. And in that, he describes and defines repentance. And this is the way he defines it. He said that repentance, as is described in the Bible, is turning. First of all, it's turning from something. It's turning from self and from sin. But he said also repentance to be complete is turning to someone. And that is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and Him alone. Because Jesus said in John 14, 6, or He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And so what Samuel is leading the people to do here is to demonstrate full repentance in turning their back on the, on the gods of the Philistines and the rest of the Canaanites, and then turning to God with wholehearted devotion to the Lord to serve Him. And so he's, he's and, and, and in the midst of that, in the midst of carrying out the process of, of repentance, God gives a promise. And he says, he will, God, God will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. If you turn to God in true repentance, God will respond. He will respond with deliverance. And I believe that's the process that brings us revival. When we repent of our sins, God delivers us from the effects of our sins, the consequences of our sins, and, 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 and the guilt that comes with sin. He leads them now, Samuel leads them, God actually is leading them through Samuel to corporate worship. You might be thinking, well, what's worship got to do with them being delivered from their enemies? Let's look at verse 5. Then Samuel said, gather all, the, all of Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And so as we look at this scenario, Samuel is calling the people together, all the nation of Israel to come together at Mizpah. In other words, assemble themselves before God in the presence of Almighty God to do business with God. That's so reminiscent of Exodus chapter 19 when God, through Moses, called his people to assemble themselves at Mount Sinai in the presence of God to do business with God. And so there, in that scene, you can almost just sense the, 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 the tension in the air as the people are in, you know, in awe of thinking we, we're coming together for the first time in a long time as a nation in the presence of God. And you'll notice that in, in that passage in verse 6, it talks about as they gathered, they drew water and they poured it out before the Lord. And I, and I got to thinking about that. And, you know, in Lamentations chapter 2, verse 19, it tells us, pour out your hearts like water before the presence of the Lord. This was just a symbolic demonstration of the people. As Samuel is praying to God on their behalf, the people are pouring out their hearts in genuine repentance and demonstrated their seriousness, the seriousness of their words through fasting. They're not eating, they're fasting these folks are serious about wanting to get back close to God. And finally, 
crying out to God. As Samuel is praying on their behalf, as their prophet, they're fasting, they're pouring out their hearts in repentance before God, and they're crying out to God, we have sinned against the Lord. I believe the Lord is right now waiting on His people, Christians and churches across the land, to sense the convicting power of His Holy Spirit, exposing unrepented sins of pride and materialism and greed and lust and jealousy and compromise with the world. He's waiting on His people to be convicted in their hearts and to come to their spiritual senses as Israel is doing at this point, and to just like Israel, to cry out to God in honest, heartfelt confession and repentance, resulting in genuine Holy Spirit, biblical revival that would draw, them, draw people back into a close, intimate relationship with God again. The reason that so many Christians and so many churches appear, appear to be spiritually dead it's simply because they almost are. Sin, unrepentant sin, is sucking the spiritual life out of them, individually and as a corporate body. And if ever the body of Christ is in need of genuine biblical revival, I say it's now. Listen, friends, no amount of orthodoxy or no amount of theology, no amount of ministry or missions or financial giving can bring to the church what revival brings. Renewal in spirit, vitality in worship, power in prayer, passion for the word of God, and an authentic love for God, first and foremost. Authentic love for the brethren, as Jesus says in the New Commandment in John chapter 13, verse 34. And authentic love for neighbors. That's what revival does for individual Christians, and that's what revival does for the church. Listen, just like the people of Israel, the church of America needs a, a fresh encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ that results in revival. Any church that is seeking to be the true body of Christ would do well to heed to the words of Jesus in that letter in, in, the, in Revelation that we find that Jesus is speaking to the church at Ephesus. When Jesus said to that congregation, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you, can, how you cannot bear with those who are evil and, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and, and they are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had first. You have walked away from, neglected, and abandoned the love and the passion that you once had for me. He says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent. There's that word. Repent and do the works you did first. And he says, if not, I will come to you, and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. This is the message that God is delivering through his faithful servant, Joshua, setting the stage for God to bring 
revival to revive his people. But as we look further, God's at work now, folks. <laughs> Praise God. Jehovah is on a roll. He's let the prophet out of the gate. And the word of God is coming into the midst of the people of God. And the first time in a long time, the hearts of the people of Israel are, are poised to hear from God. And to respond to the powerful word of God. God's working. You remember for a long time, Israel had been under the domination of their technologically and militarily superior enemies, the Philistines. And the Philistines had probably prohibited any large gathering of the Israelites for fear that they would try to maybe rally themselves and revolt against the Philistine rule of the land. So when the word reaches the Philistines that the leaders, uh, the Philistine leaders, that the Israelites are now under new spiritual leadership and they're gathering together as a nation at Mizpah. Oh, listen, the leaders of the Philistines mustered up a sizable army and they head in the direction with the intentions of squashing those Jews again in battle, just like they did 20 years ago. They were in for a little bit of a surprise. Going back to the text in chapter 7. It says, Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Now don't, don't be too judgmental on them. Don't be too harsh. What's the matter? I thought they were in the process of having revival and they're acting like they're scared. You got to remember, for years, for decades, they've been under the iron fist rule and intimidation of the, of the Philistines. This is just their being concerned. They're not truly panicking. They're concerned. And says in verse 8, And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord, our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. What a moment. What a moment. Because in, in, their, in their time of need, God's prophet knows there's only one thing God's people need to be doing at this moment, and that is focusing their hearts and their minds and their eyes upon God. And there's no better way to do that than worship itself. Isn't it interesting that in the face of this recent threat, Israelites aren't saying, somebody go get the ark. You don't even hear about the ark. Not that it's not important, not that it doesn't have a, rele a relevant place in the life of Israel, but let me tell you something. They have come to the point of faith of realizing they don't need to put their faith in an article, in an object, when they've got Almighty God standing right before them. And so they're saying, call upon the Lord. God will save us. And in their moment of need, Samuel leads the people to worship. Israel is expressing confession and repentance and under conviction, Samuel is interceding in prayer. Oh my goodness, what a moment it is. Samuel is, is, is now, you'll see, going to offer a, 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 a sin offering on behalf of the people. Look at verse 9. So Samuel took a nursing lamb 
and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Let me just tell you something. Can you imagine the people are pouring out their hearts in prayer, confession, repentance before the Lord? They're confessing to the Lord. Lord, we know we've sinned against you. They're appealing to their prophet. Call upon God. God is our only hope. He will save us. You see their faith beginning to grow. And so, so here, here Samuel is offering this offering as a reminder to the people and a demonstration to God that they acknowledge that there's only one, one who can forgive them of their sins. And the, and the price of the forgiveness of their sins costs another life, an innocent life. And so they're being reminded in this act of worship that they are a covenant people. Sinners, yes, but a covenant people nonetheless in a, in a relationship of faith dependent upon the grace of God. And what a moment it is. Meanwhile, the Philistines are thundering towards Mizpah, confident. I just see them in their chariots chuckling back and forth and said, you know, those Jews don't even have weapons. We've forbidden them to even make iron weapons. We, we control the iron market. Those Jews don't even have chariots. We, we murdered them before. Why are they so crazy to even attempt to do something like this? Oh, this will be a short order, no doubt. In verse 10, the Samuel was offering up the offering. The Philistines drew near to attack. But... I'm always interested when God's word inserts the word but. It tells me that something pretty important is just about to change. The scheme of things are about to turn in a drastic direction. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion and they were defeated before Israel. Listen. The Lord himself, not God plus Israel, the Lord himself single-handedly did a number on the Philistines that demonstrated that he and he alone is the one true living God. And he overwhelmingly defeated the enemies of his people. You know, I was looking at the details and God has worked historically in the life of Israel. I mean, in battle, he's done phenomenal supernatural things. I mean, my goodness, through the prayers of Joshua in the midst of a battle, he needed more daylight. What did Joshua say? Lord, could you cause the sun to stand still? <laughs> and, and for that period of time, the sun appeared to stand still as the earth stopped in its orbit. Don't ask me to explain how it happened or in its rotation, but it did. And that was the longest day in history of man. There are other times when the people of God were encountering their enemies and God rained down hailstones upon their enemy. There are other times when God would cause fire to come down from heaven. So don't be absolutely amazed, though you should be amazed. And God does something like this to cause such a mighty clap of thunder, a sound. I was reading, our military has a weapon called a stun grenade. That in some situations when our troops want to get the element of surprise upon the enemy to catch them off guard, they deploy this special grenade. Not, not an ordinary grenade. That upon impact, it explodes with 100 to 180 decibels of noise. 
releasing a blinding flash equivalent to one million candela. Its impact normally causes disorientation, confusion, loss of coordination and balance, and it enables our forces to rush in with less risk of losing lives. You might say that Israel's God put on display his own version of a stun grenade out there on the battlefield. And by the way, according to the biblical record, it worked really good. Because when God thundered that mighty sound from heaven against the Philistines, they were thrown into absolute confusion, so much so that they were easily defeated. Because as you look and see, God's revived people with renewed confidence in the Lord joined the fight. After God had gotten the clear victory, they joined in the fight. And they, they pursued the Philistines, it tells us. So the, the I'm sorry. And the men of Israel, verse 11, and the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Beth, Bethkar. And so Israel now is, is re-energized. They are revived. They have renewed confidence in God. And now they're cleaning up after God has won the victory. What a contrast. What a contrast revival made in the life of his people. This is the same nation, Israel. Back in chapter 4, when the Philistines attacked, they killed, they slaughtered 30,000 Israeli foot soldiers. And now it's Israel that is routing the Philistines. You see, when God's people today turn to the Lord in humble confession and repentance of sin and place their full trust in the Lord, it's amazing to see the spiritual victories that God will win in the lives of his people as they regain their confidence and strength in, in the Lord and in the word of God and the promises of God. It's amazing to see the spiritual victories that take place at the individual level as people are given victory over uh, sinful habits and sinful attitudes and sinful relationships. Listen, as a result of revival, genuine biblical revival, not only are churches revived, marriages are, are, are healed. Parents and children are reconciled. Churches are revitalized. Souls are saved for the kingdom of God as it's been advanced in the world, in the world and, and not to the praise of men, but to the glory of God. God's people come to grips with the seriousness of their sins and turn humbly before, the God, before their God. And then I want us to see, in addition to God reviving his people, how God, as we just saw, routed his enemy. And now God reestablishes his people. God reestablishes his people. Since the glorious days of Joshua, Israel has not functioned as or looked like a people committed to God. The covenant relationship with God that, that, that they once flourished in, you know, now for generations have been severed by their blatant sinfulness. And with that relationship now being restored through repentance and true revival, God finally has his people's attention. And he's preparing to lead his people into a new era, an era of peace, an era of prosperity, and an era that would include their own king, as we'll see as 1 Samuel continues to unfold. And so looking with me in verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer. For he says, till now the Lord has helped us. And stop and think about it. Through the history of the nation of Israel from the time that God called them out of, out of Egypt into, in, in, into the wilderness and into the promised land, 
God has been faithful. God has been faithful to the promises He made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God has demonstrated over and over again that He is faithful. And is, as, as Joshua is erecting this stone that he entitled Ebenezer, it's just a symbolic standing witness to the fact that God is a faithful divine help to His people. It's not the first time that, that a memorial has been constructed because we know Joshua did something very similar. When God brought the people of Israel into the promised land, they had to get through the, or, yeah, through the Jordan River. And God parted the waters of the Jordan River. And what did Joshua do? He erected stone monuments that people would see for generations to come so that they would be reminded of the faithfulness of God. At the end of Joshua's life, when he, he led the people in, in renewing their covenant with God, he erected a stone uh, monument as a memorial to the people. The people made commitments to follow God, to obey God, and Joshua put that monument there as a reminder to them. Of course, they broke their part, but the reminder was still there. Listen, they may have failed. They may have failed on a number of occasions, but God never failed them. Israel may have failed God, but God never failed Israel. And this Ebenezer that, that Samuel is erecting is a reminder to the people that to this point, God has always been true. He has always been faithful. You know, as we, as a church, in a similar way, as we observe the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, that ordinance in itself is our type of Ebenezer because it reminds us didn't Jesus say, do this in remembrance of me? Every time that we observe the ordinance, it's like an Ebenezer being set up before us to remind us as born-again believers in Jesus Christ that our God has been faithful to carry out His promise to provide a perfect sacrifice, a Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who would take away the sins of His people. He would redeem us from the penalty of our sins. Why are we not more grateful? Why are we not more humble? Why is it not that we can go through the process of going through the motions of, a, of an ordinance and, and not see the, the sheer weightiness of how great a sacrifice that God's Son made for you and me and how absolutely faithful God is to forgive us of our sins and to give us eternal life. Now listen, Israel's dominance over the Philistines now brought peace into the region, not only to the Israelites, but to their neighbors. In verse 14, the cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Why did the writer insert that? Because when Israel is, has the upper hand militarily, when they're the dominant force because of their God being present with them, and they're rightly related to Jehovah, listen, they have a way of intimidating the Philistines, and they did. Throughout the whole life of Samuel, the Philistines were, no, were, were a non-issue, no longer. And the Amorites, who were a people group that, re, that resided in the mountains, the, the hills between Israel and the Mediterranean coastal plain, the, the Amorites, well, listen, 
they, they had peace too. I'm sure that the Philistines had intimidated them. So, so when God is working in the hearts of his people and he brings about wonderful blessings and peace, listen, it tends to affect other people as well. God is returning their land. He's restoring their peace. And God is realigning his people under the leadership once again, under godly leadership once again. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, verse 15, all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah from, for his home, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel. He built there an altar to the Lord. Through Samuel, his faithful prophet judge, God would lead his people now. Like in the days of Moses, Israel would once again hear a word from God. Through that reliable, faithful, godly servant, they would hear a word from the Most High. Like Moses, Samuel would intercede on the people's behalf on a regular basis. And he would make judgments based on God's holy word. And he would lead them in the pathway of the Lord's will. And today, through faithful, anointed servants, pastors, God continues to seek to lead his people today in the pathway of divine peace and heartfelt worship and kingdom fruitfulness for the glory of God. Listen, Samuel, unlike Eli, he would be among the people, representing the presence of God with the people. Samuel didn't stay holed up at the tabernacle and the people come to him. He made a circuit to significant towns, going and preaching the word and proclaiming the truth and judging the people and being the presence of God before them to remind them that Jehovah, their God, was with them, not contained in a temple like the pagan deities. Oh, what a refreshing, a refreshing time in a nation that had known spiritual famine for so long. Not to Samuel's credit, but to God's, God's glory. He's the one that worked. But you know, I, I, on a personal note for Samuel, as I was closing out chapter 7, I was thinking, it's just like God. That when Hannah, that simple godly wife, was praying, and God honored her prayers, and she made a commitment to give her son to the Lord, to serve the Lord, and she took him to the tabernacle. Her little boy. And God is bringing him home. Because after Samuel would make his circuit, he would end up back at Ramah. It's very possible that Hannah's still alive. It's very possible that the, the, the very son that she had totally committed and given over to God to serve the Lord, the Lord in his graciousness and his love would return him back into her presence and Ramah would be home again for Samuel. You know, our, don't miss these little things that God does. He could have had him stuck somewhere, you know, else at Hebron or someplace, but he brought him back home. And that's just the nature of our loving and faithful God. I pray that today 
that Lord will the Lord will use the the message of of, of this episode in the life of the nation of Israel to speak to your heart. I pray that as God's people found wonderful renewal and revival through heartfelt confession and repentance, that you as God's people today, individually and corporately as a body, will find the refreshment, refresh, have a fresh encounter, the refreshment of coming in the presence of God and having that spiritual cleansing take place. Let's bow. Father, we thank you that you give us your word. You fill us with your Holy Spirit. You speak to us so clearly and so plainly. Even through the ancient episodes in the life, in the lives of your people Israel then, there's so many wonderful principles that we can learn and apply to our lives as your people today. We thank you, Lord, that indeed you are a holy God. You are just but we also know you to be a, a, a merciful God, a God of amazing grace. And we are the recipients of that through our faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so, Lord, I just want to ask that your Holy Spirit minister to us right now. In this time of reflection, as we turn our attention from the nation of Israel and turn our attention to ourselves, to our church, to the body of Christ in the 21st century. Lord, like the psalmist, help us to be able to sincerely pray, search me, O God. Search me. Search me. Know my thoughts. Try me. Know my heart. Look at my inner being. And Lord, I, I, we pray, we pray that as you search us, as the psalmist said, if there be anything ungodly. Lord, expose it that we might confess it. Any sin that we might indeed turn our backs on the spiritual idols that we have constructed in our lives, habits, practices, relationships, Sins of commission as well as sins of omission. Help us to confess that to you. And then, Lord, to enter into the process of repentance where we determine to turn our backs on the sin that besets us and hinders us and turn to you and put our eyes on Jesus Christ our Savior and our Lord, our Master, and to determine to follow you and you alone in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Lord, do that work in our hearts, we pray. Where revival is needed individually or corporately, Lord, we pray 
according to your perfect will, revive us again. Fill each heart with your love. And we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.